There are a couple verses in there I hadn't heard before. I really enjoyed those. Is this too hot? Is this too loud? No. Okay. No, I, was, I was worried if it was. I was going to send you over there, Chris. Um, we have been uh, going through a, a study called uh, The Fundamentals of Everything. It's a, a little different than those of you who usually follow along with me. Um, I thought of a, a good analogy for the two different types of preaching. Uh, growing up, one of the things our family would do is we'd go on little walks down nature trails. And as we went on, on those walks as a little kid, one of the things uh, you'd often do is uh, to in, in, enjoy the beauty of nature or something. You'd, you'd grab a leaf or a rock or uh, look up close at a bug if you, you're a boy uh, to be able to see it in a little more detail. To, to understand the, the beauty of the particularity of that thing. And so you, you'd get uh, the object in your hand and you'd look at it closer and you'd see all these uh, details that weren't for, at first immediately apparent. That, and that's one way we enjoy the beauty of something is by getting really close to it. Uh, another thing our family would do is we would uh, take vacations, uh, or it was actually a church retreat once a year in the Alps. And one of the things I, I loved doing as a kid is you would uh, go up in these mountains, and the, the higher you get, the more glorious and the more spectacular the view was. Why? Because you were actually further away from things and better able to see it. Uh, usually in our Sunday evening services, uh, those of you who know me, we could spend three weeks on a verse or things like that. Usually we're looking at the details, but in this series, we're backing up in order to better see the overarching majesty of what God is doing through all of redemptive history. Uh, we've uh, gone through creation, we've gone through the fall, uh, and we're now going through redemption. And as we've been tracing uh, some of the thoughts here, uh, we, we, a lot of our previous messages are kind of building up to this point. Uh, we, we talked even in the fall about the promise to the woman. The, the promise that, uh, or it's actually a curse against the serpent, that there is one coming who is going to crush the head of the serpent. That uh, person was referred to as the seed of the woman. We kind of talked about how that's unusual language in ancient thinking, because in ancient thinking, uh, you know, we have the birds and the bees, they had the soil and the seed. In their analogy, the seed is the male agency and the soil is the female agency, so the seed is implanted into the soil and then the fruit comes up from it. Uh, if you need any clarification on what that means, ask somebody else. Um, but, but So this promise in Genesis is really unusual because it's not usually uh, the female to whom the seed comes. That's usually a, a male designation. So we had that unusual promise in Genesis uh, 3.15. Then we looked a little bit at Abraham. We looked at Abraham as the father of the faith and the father of the faithful. And we also looked at a, a peculiar promise to him that through the seed of Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. Then we looked at the promises to David last week. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, there's the seed of David who's going to build a house for God, who will be a son to God, whose kingdom and throne will endure forever. 
And they, there, there was a partial fulfillment, we talked about that, in Solomon, but there was a greater fulfillment yet to come. By the way, that, that word for seed that occurs in Genesis uh, 3 and in the covenants to Abraham and in the promises to David is all the same word. Uh, I believe it's uh, Zerah. There's a Hebrew word for seed. It occurs in all those passages. Uh, in, in our translations, it's usually seed or offspring. But one of the things that's, that's being done is that term is being hammered over and over again to let people know this is, a, a, as we kind of say, a focusing and a filling out of God's promises to do something about the awful condition of mankind. As we now get to, uh, as we begin to get to the culmination of redemption and are beginning to to look at Jesus Christ, um, I, I want to take a minute just to talk a little bit about an, an issue that I think is um, infecting a lot of churches, and it's a problem that has to do with the way in which. We think. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine. I didn't get uh, per- permission to mention this, so the, the friend will remain anonymous. But they sent me a sermon. Uh, and we live in a, a day and age that b- both has great benefits and great disadvantages, and sometimes those are the same. One of the great benefits and disadvantages of this day and age is there's a lot of preaching that gets to be distributed to a lot of people. If that preaching and teaching is good, that's a good thing. If that preaching and teaching is bad, that's, well, not quite a good thing. And, and as, as I listen to this sermon, uh, most of y'all know me, it, 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 other than college football, it takes a lot to get me angry. Uh, usually I just stuff anger deep down inside of me. But uh, as I was listening to this sermon, uh, it, it became one of the sermons that made me the most angry listening to it. As, as I listened to it, uh, the, the person was kind of saying, hey, look, if, if there are parts of Scripture uh, that you don't understand, that seem judgmental, that seem cruel, that seem mean to you, that seem uh, old-fashioned, you, just ignore those and, and focus on Jesus. Believing in Jesus is the main thing. Now, if, if by the way, if you ever want to know a key to discernment, if you ever want to know one of the primary ways in which Satan makes lies more palatable, it's this. You have uh, two statements, and one of them is a truth, and the other one is a lie. Part of what they said is absolutely true. The main thing, the most important thing, is believing in Jesus. Everything else hangs on that. Everything else is contingent on that. But to say that you need to ignore or disregard certain portions of Scripture to make Christ more palatable to you is a very, very dangerous thing. Uh, Think about, and by the way, this is a little bit of a tangent before we get to our main point, but I think it's a, I hope it's a sanctified tangent. Uh, You look at Jeremiah 23.16 is a warning against false prophets. It says, uh, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hope. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And essentially what this pastor was, was saying is, look, you can ignore the things that come from the mouth of the Lord in Scripture and depend upon your own mind 
to determine what is actually accurate. Uh, one of the, the passages that I, I use to kind of um, sober me as a preacher and teacher of the Word is, is 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. through 4. It's for the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will gather unto themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That for me is something I try and keep in front of me all the time so that I make sure the messages I give are faithful and that I'm not trying to please men, but rather God. We see in these two passages the characteristics of a couple things. We see the character of false prophecy is that it comes from the minds of men and not God. And then we see the nature of those who come under false teaching is that they find teachers whose teaching pleases their own desires. Now, if you ever find yourself in a church where the preacher values his opinion over and against the Word of God, run. If it's me, if it's somebody else, if you get the sense that they value their opinion over and above Scripture, run. Get out of there as fast as you can. If you ever find in yourself a desire to find a church or a pastor who just makes you feel good about yourself, repent. Get, get out of there. Get that out of you. Now, now that, is, that isn't to say that there is no joy in Christianity, no happiness in Christianity. Hey, look, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration. There is a lot of peace. There's a lot of fellowship. There's so many wonderful things that we have in Christianity. But if you're, you're going to a church where they never address sin, self righteousness, self indulgence, if the pastor never calls himself or the congregation out on those things, you're in a very dangerous place. And the sad reality is, is today that you can find churches that not only don't call out sin, but we, there are actually churches that can help you in your self-justification of your own sin. They, they, they not only don't call it out, but they actually end up supporting it. So you don't even have to justify your sin. The preacher will do it for you. He'll enable you to better excuse greed, idolatry, sexual immorality, selfishness. Run from false teachers. And repent when you desire Scripture to be changed in order to accommodate your desires rather than having your desires changed to align with Scripture. Uh, So... When this person was saying this thing, though, this is how I'm looping it back tangentially. So I said it's a little bit of a sanctified rabbit tail. But when this person was teaching this, he's essentially saying, Scripture can be hard, can be difficult, just focus on, on Jesus as the main thing. That mindset would be completely foreign to a first century believer. And a first century, especially a first century Jewish believer. 
The Christ, the Messiah, must come in accordance with the promises and the prophecies of Scripture. Otherwise, someone making those claims should have been killed as a false prophet. The the identity and the activity of Jesus in, in the ancient mindset is inseparably tied to the promises and the prophecy of Scripture that predicted his identity. With that in mind, and by the way, that's what we've been doing the last several weeks, looking at Abraham, looking at Moses, looking at David. We've been looking at the way in which God, through the Old Testament scriptures and through the prophets, has been preparing humanity for the arrival of Jesus. We're going to kind of, we're going to mention a bunch of scripture, but we're going to look primarily at at two areas of scripture. One before the birth of Jesus and one right before the death of Jesus that address his identity. And we're going to be looking at how Jesus is fully God and fully human. By the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but in, in some of the uh, passages we, we did in preparation for worship, including Philippians 2, those are great places to go. There are a lot of places we could go with this, but as I said, we're zooming back far and looking at the mountains. We can't look at every single peak and talk about them. So we're just going to look at a couple of phrases. Uh, the first place we're going to be looking is in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 36. Turn with your Bibles if you have them. To Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 and going through verse 36. This, by the way, is the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary in order to announce the birth of Jesus. This is a passage we usually wait till Christmas time to look at, uh, but is a wonderful passage full of deep theology to look at. Anyway, as we read this, by the way, I want you to pay special attention to who Gabriel is saying that Jesus will be. Okay? So, so listen and pay attention to who Gabriel is saying that Jesus will be. The titles of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. That's powerful, isn't it? I almost want to say amen and pack it up after that. Um, now, we, we mentioned there, there are certain promises here that have come. And then in this uh, passage, it's talking about an announcement of that Jesus is coming and who he'll be, what his identity is. And with a group like this, it might be a little bit redundant to say, uh, why do we, why should we talk about the identity of Jesus? But we live in a day and age where people are so concerned about the practical and uh, what, what is it, how is it involved in your life? Uh, what does it matter? Uh, but the reality is that the identity of Jesus matters more than almost anything else. The identity and activity of Jesus determines our faith, it determines our hope, it determines our glory. If he isn't who he claimed to be, if he isn't who Scripture says he is, if he isn't who the church believes him to be, then he couldn't have accomplished what he claimed to accomplish. And if he didn't accomplish what he claimed to accomplish, we are still dead in our sins. Condemned before God, separated from the love of God, and destined for eternal wrath. If he isn't who he claims to be, we need to shut things down, pack it up, and do something different with our Sunday nights. But if he is who he claims to be, well, that changes everything. So let's look at the identity of Jesus as it relates to this passage. Uh, Jesus in this passage is presented as fully God and fully human in accordance with the promises of Scripture. Uh, so in this passage, let's, as, and as I said, there are lots of places to go to prove this. We're going to fly through a lot of them, uh, but, but ultimately we're just scratching the surface of this topic. It's not something we can uh, hit in one shot. So this was kind of one of the best ways, I thought, to kind of summarize them. In this passage, uh, Jesus is, is given a uh, divine and a human background. And you notice in the divine background, he's called Son of the Most High. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's called the Son of God. These are divine titles. In terms of his earthly and, and human background, it said he has a father, David. And the announcement is coming to Mary who will be his mother, who conceives in virginity. Now we have lots of promises and predictions in, in Scripture. One of the things we talked about is the way in which they are, are focused. Uh, and, and last week, one of the ones we focused on as we looked at David was the term Messiah, Mashiach. Uh, and we talked about how that just means anointed one. Somebody who is chosen and set aside for a specific purpose. And that in terms of the promises to David, it was about a king who was coming. Said the kings are anointed and priests are anointed in, in, in ancient Israel. It was about an anointed king who was coming. We talked about how Messiah uh, is the Hebrew word, and then in Greek it, it moved on to the word Christos, from which we get Christ. So as we call Jesus the Christ, one of the things we are pointing to is that he is this king that has been anticipated, that has been hoped for 
By the way, even the term Jesus uh, is loaded with meaning. You know, Jesus means deliverer. So we, we have a Christ. And one of the things that happens between David and the advent of Jesus is these promises for this Messiah, these promises for this King, keep getting bigger and bigger. And one of the things is they get bigger and bolder even as the Davidic line keeps failing and failing, and even as the people of Israel and then later of Judah keep failing and failing. And so one of the things is that's kind of odd is, uh, even as things look really bad with the people of God, the promises of God just seem to keep on getting bolder and bolder. There are more and more promises as you go on and prophecies related to the Messiah. He's got a kingdom that's going to last forever. He's going to be sent to deliver his people. He's not going to be. He's not going to experience decay. He's going to be a Lord. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to live righteously. Isaiah fifty three says he's going to bear the sins of many. It also says he's going to take on the transgressions of others. And when you begin to look at all these promises that are centering around this figure, one of the things that you begin to realize is that what had to be accomplished by the Messiah eventually could only be accomplished by God. Yet the the promises have to come to a human, David's offspring. The scriptures are eventually promising somebody who has to be fully God and fully man. By the way, with this tension, it's always been something difficult to understand that God's, uh, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But different eras have different struggles with this. Uh, in our day and age, uh, people tend to hang up more on the, uh, how can a man be God? How, how can Jesus be God? Uh, do you know what the early church struggled with? How on earth could this person be human? And, and so a lot of the early church fathers are, are writing and saying, no, Jesus actually was human. He, he had a body. He died on the cross. And, and they're combating people who are, who are just saying, he had to be God. He couldn't, he couldn't have done all that stuff. He's a divine, divine, uh, divine only, no humanity in him. By the way, that's kind of encouraging to me that the people who are closest to Christ in terms of time struggled with that. I can't think of anybody that will struggle with that after I die, you know? Nobody's going to say, well, was he? Was Seth really human? No, they're going to have no doubt in their mind. Why? Because they've been around me. Uh, this isn't one of those things where once the person, or, you know, it's not going to be one of those things, it, it, it makes me think it's not going to be one of those things where a long time later, you know, people uh, kind of build these legends and, and myths around somebody, you know, you think of George Washington and the, you know, the cherry tree, you know, those kind of stories that get built up as time goes on. It, it seems actually things have tempered down when it comes to the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. That the closer back you get, the more of a fever pitch there was in, oh my goodness, this person was divine. And and they doubt his humanity. There's a presentation here, we said, of Jesus' human lineage. It's mentioned that his father is David. 
If his father is David, that means he's coming from the... Or, by the way, not literal father, but he's in the line of David. That's why David's called his father. If he's in the line of David, that means he's in the kingly line. If he's in the line of David, that means he is from the tribe of Judah. If he's from the tribe of Judah, it means that he comes from Jacob or Israel. If he's from Jacob or Israel, it means he's also a son of Isaac. If he's a son of Isaac, it means he's also a son of Abraham. All these are scriptural prerequisites to meet the scriptural prophecies and predictions of who the Messiah was going to be. By the way, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, is Paul's attempt to kind of uh, let people know, uh, hey, this gospel this, that we believe, this Jesus we're putting our faith in, he is absolutely trustworthy. And the best, listen to this, this is his argument, and I'm going to skip later on when he appears to, appeals to eyewitnesses and, and those who see him. But listen to his appeal for, hey, this is the proof of the gospel, is actually true. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and then He goes on to list other people who had a first-hand experience of, of seeing the resurrected Lord. But in, in this passage, evidence that he mentions twice is that the activity of Christ, uh, Jesus dying, uh, Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus being buried, Jesus being raised on the third day, that these things happened according to Scripture. And I mentioned earlier that in, in the first century Jewish mindset, one of the things that had to happen is you had to accept the Messiah based on the scriptural prerequisites. Now, now one of the things, and this is almost mind-blowing for us to think about, but if Jesus, if, I won't say Jesus because it, it's a, it'd be paradoxical. If somebody came into the ancient world, if they did a bunch of miracles, if they died and rose again, Yet those things didn't happen in accordance with what was prophesied in the scripture. That person should be rejected. That was how much the ancient Jewish thought was. So for Paul, it's not just what Jesus does and and who he is. It's that all those things had been predicted and prophesied beforehand. You see why I talk about this section being the long, slow preparation of mankind for her Savior. We also see this not only in 1 Corinthians 15, but in Acts 2. I love Peter's preaching in Acts 2. Uh, his, his basic sermon outline is, Jesus is Lord and Messiah and you killed him. And that's it. Like he ends on that note. And then people are like, well, what should we do? And he's like, repent and be baptized. But it's like, he doesn't even end with that. He just says, yeah, Jesus was Lord in Christ and he killed him. 
He is the Messiah and Lord. And, and like that's the that's the sermon. Go go and look at it sometime. But in that sermon, he quotes from the prophet Joel and he quotes from the Psalms to prove that Jesus is both Messiah and Lord based on what he did and and who he was. So from this first century Jewish perspective and from the apostles' perspective, from Peter and Paul's view, if Jesus didn't come according to the Old Testament prophecies, he should be rejected. And by the way, when you look at the prophecies and predictions, a lot of them are out of human control. I was born in 1984 in Moorhead City, North Carolina to Ronnie and Jane Stevens, and I had absolutely no say in that. I, I didn't get a vote. I, I didn't get to decide who I was born to. I didn't get to decide where I was born. There are prophecies and predictions. The Messiah has to be in the right line. He's got to be in the line of David. The prophecy, the, the, their prophecies, uh, like Micah 5.2, that says he has to be born in a specific place. The Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus has the right ancestry and the right birthplace. Another thing we mentioned, we talked about how weird it is to talk about the seed of a woman in the promises of Genesis 3.15. In this passage in Luke we've been reading is a reminder that in Jesus Christ's birth there is no male earthly agency involved. You know, that's what kind of Mary says. Hey, that's, that's great and all, but you have this son, but I'm a virgin. What's he say? The Holy Spirit is going to accomplish your conception. Jesus is a a seed of a woman who comes to destroy all evil. By the way, also, the fact that a virgin conceives is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. So we see in in this passage that having been born in the lineage of David, having the Virgin Mary as his mother points to the humanity of Jesus in fulfillment with the promises of Scripture. His divine nature is also pointed to in this passage. He's called the Son of the Most High. He's conceived, as we mentioned, by the Holy Spirit's working. He's called the Son of God. These titles point to the divinity of Jesus. By the way, um, I I hope as we go through this, you you make connections. And uh, one of the connections should, should, this should be, uh, I don't know what connections do, connecting, I guess, Um, is to think about, you know, there's some parts of the Bible, and and, uh, the Bible, uh, you know, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and, uh, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But there's parts of the Bible that are easier to be edified than others. Anybody get to the genealogies and start kind of skipping forward a little bit? One of the things we see in these promises and predictions is why, especially for the first century audience, those genealogies are important. Messiah's got to have the right lineage, right? And we have uh, human genealogies of Jesus in Matthew. Uh, Matthew starts with Abraham. We also have one in Luke. Luke starts with Adam. He goes way back. Um, 
And both those are human genealogies of Jesus, kind of giving his pedigree for his Messiahship. By the way, there's another genealogy of Jesus. It's the genealogy of Jesus in John 1, which looks at not his earthly genealogy, but his divine genealogy. Listen to this and, and think about what it tells us of Jesus. As John uses uh, the word, it's a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word of God became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That and the Word became flesh is telling us the time when in which the divine Son, the Son of God, entered into the world. It's another genealogy, it's another birth story. It describes the one who made the world coming into the world. These titles of, of Jesus, his, his background, his divine genealogy, pointing to the fact that he is God. We also see this not only in his titles, but also in his work. Psalm 3.8 says that salvation is from the Lord. By the way, this, this was a, a huge influence in uh, the church coming to understand what we now call the doctrine of the Trinity. If salvation is from God, then uh, it helps us to understand uh, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God. They all work in salvation. And one of the accusations of Jesus, you remember this, is uh, it, as you know, blind people, lame, lame uh, people, all these people with these dis- disabilities come to, uh, he would heal them, and he would also tell them, your sins are forgiven. Some of the religious leaders said, hey, well, wait a minute, that's something only God can do. Well, only God can forgive the sins of, of somebody else. Uh, it's almost as though they were catching on to something. Jesus is divine. And, and by the way, um, Jesus being called the Son of God is even something that's prophesied. Psalm 2 7 says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten to you. It points to Jesus as divine. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, we see these divine titles at the beginning of Jesus' life, before he's come in this announcement to Mary. We also see it at the end of his life. In fact, the divine claims of Jesus are what get him killed. Uh, Turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 
Matthew 26 is a long chapter in the Bible. We're going to be in verse uh, 62. Matthew 26, we're going to look at 62 through 68. This is after some false accusations and false witnesses come to Jesus uh, and eventually... Um, the high priest says to Jesus and the high priest stood up and said have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him I adjure you by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God Jesus said to him You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This divine claim, this claim to be the Christ, this claim to be the Messiah, this claim to be the Son of God, is what hands down the judgment of blasphemy. In essence, the council says he can't be God. By the way, the the resurrection of Jesus is the definitive proof that they were wrong. It's what allows us to say he is who he claimed to be. Now, uh, real quickly, we're just going to cover three things. uh, And there's uh, tons more we could talk about. Uh, but I, I want to talk about three things that the, this unique identity of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, allows Jesus to be for us. First of all, it allows him to be our sacrifice. He, he's a fitting sacrifice. Uh, he is a man who dies for mankind. He's a sinless substitute. He's a perfect offering. He's a blood sacrifice. By the way, Hebrews 10 talks about this. He's a once and all sacrifice for sin. The, the, the offering of lambs and goats and other animals in, in the Levitical system had to be sacrificed over and over and over again. Why? Because they didn't really cover the sins. They just pointed to the one who was coming who would. Jesus is a, a fitting substitute for humanity, but he is also the Son of God, so he is a sinless Substitute, Because remember, the penalty for sin is death. If he had just been another man with his own sin, he would have had to go through that punishment as a natural consequence of his own sin. But as the Son of God, as the sinless Son of God, he serves as a suitable sacrifice. The Lamb of God, sacrificed for us. I hope this concept, by the way, humbles you. To know that part of the purpose the Son of God came to earth was to die in your place and to die in my place. 
I hope it leads you to praise Him for what He has accomplished on our behalf. I hope it leads you to a life of gratitude that He has given such a wonderful thing for us. The full humanity and the full deity of God points to uh, the reality that He is our Savior. Now, we, we mentioned this already. Salvation is a work of God. In order to accomplish salvation, he's got to have power over life and death. Through Jesus, sin and death is defeated on the cross. He also serves as a suitable representative of the human race. According to 1 Corinthians 15, he acts as a second Adam. He's our Savior. points to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He is a Son of God given to save us. We should have joy in His provision. We should have joy in the peace that He's given that now we are no longer living under the curse of Adam but for those who believe can have a relationship with God again and enter into His courts with thanksgiving and praise that we might be called the children of God. Why? Because He took our sin upon Himself and gave to us His righteousness, His right standing with God. Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God. Enables Him to be our sacrifice, our Savior, and thirdly, it it enables Him to be our sovereign. Jesus Christ is a King. That's what saying he's from the line of David is about. That's what saying he is Messiah and Christ. He's not just a king. He's not just a Messiah. He's not just a Christ. He's Lord. And he is God. Are you treating him like that? Are you entering into a bargaining phase with him? Are you saying, uh, well, I know you've done these things. Here, I'll do these things for you. and We'll have a little exchange here. The Lord is someone who you offer unconditional surrender to. Submission to their will. There can only be one person on the throne. It's either going to be Jesus or a false substitute. Are you going to depend on your wisdom? Are you going to follow your ideals? Are you going to lay them down at the cross? Are you going to come before the throne of Jesus and say, not my will, but thy will? I'm not pursuing my glory, but I'm pursuing your glory. I'm not pursuing my kingdom, I'm pursuing your kingdom. Why? Because you're worthy of all praise. You're my king, you're my Messiah, you're my Christ, you're my Lord, you're my God. Do you know him? He's our sacrifice, he's our savior, he's our sovereign. Aren't you glad that somebody came? The Son of God who became human so that we might be called the children of God. All praise and all glory, all honor be to Him.
this song for a few weeks now. In light of Seth's message, I hope you guys will consider the words worthy and holy as it says in this song, Build My Life. Let's sing it together.